You're listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning we hear from Nola Miyasaki, the new head of the city's Office of Customer Service. For more than a year, the deadlines to renew driver licenses has been pushed off. The city did roll out kiosks and grocery stores to help those needing to register their vehicles, but is now preparing to open on Saturdays come July to help ease the backlog of transactions that need to be processed. That number, close to 200,000. If your license is set to expire or has expired, you may want to listen up. You now have until August 6th, and it may not be extended after that. Miyasaki is hopeful the backlog will get cleared by the end of the year. I really did inherit not only a backlog, but a reduced capacity operation. So it has really hampered us, but really through the spring, we've been able to open up as we've moved into Tier 3 and the mayor's guidance on trying to open up the whole city with the vaccinations being increased. So right now, our backlog is probably from 2020 and projecting out through 2021, what do we have to get done? We have about 175,369 renewals, driver's license permits, instructional permits, and state IDs that are either expired or will be expiring this year. So we knew that, that we had to pretty much double our capacity from what we were doing in January of this year. Uh, we had to get back to our usual capacity and even more, do more than that. So we, we started by doing an express window walk-in line at all the satellite city halls, and that allowed the satellite city halls and people who were doing transactions other than motor vehicle and driver license transactions to just walk in the simple ones, and that freed up Aloha Q appointments. So that was the first thing. It was a low-hanging fruit. And then we opened up standby walk-in service because from the Aloha Q appointments, we were getting about 30% no-shows, mm. people that you know weren't coming in or couldn't make it, and they wouldn't cancel online. So we were having this really big no-show rate. So that actually impacted our ability to do our max capacity as well. So we started a standby service in April. Three of the largest driver license centers and the Satellite City Hall driver license locations. And that has evolved so that in May, all of the driver license locations and the four Satellite City Hall locations that do driver licenses have opened up to walk-in standby service. And that has brought us almost back up to 100% or close. So now all the no-shows, the 30% no-show appointments are being filled by walk-ins and standbys. Great. In addition, we have, through the support of the mayor's office and with some leftover CARES money, we've been able to add contractors to our staff. And so we've been actually able to really go back to full capacity. So we still have check-in services and all that that we were doing during the last year from COVID just to make sure people are social distancing, make sure they have the right real ID documents with them. It kind of actually speeds up the process, but it takes our staff off the counter. So the addition of these contractors has really helped us maximize all our counter locations. And then in July, we will start over time, we will start extended hours, one hour before, one hour after, and the four satellite city hall locations will open up on Saturdays all day. Wow. Mm-hmm. So we're really gain- we've gained a lot of momentum between April, May, June, and now July. We're going to be double time capacity. So we're really I'm excited because I think I can just see that the numbers of transactions has really increased just in the month of June and May. Well, what if you need to do something simple? Let's say you you come over here, move over here from the mainland, and want to switch over your driver's license to a local license. So that usually requires Aloha Q appointments. So they can either, if they can't get an Aloha Q appointment, then they could walk in and they could do a standby appointment. We also release appointments the night before. So anyone that doesn't have an Aloha Q appointment who hasn't been able to get one, has something urgent like that or needs a duplicate, they can go online in the afternoon and look for appointments that are released for the next day that are cancellations. So that's another tip. Some of them will release appointments the night before. Okay. Yeah, I was, I think, one of the early guinea pigs that went through the Aloha queue, and it was really efficient. I was in and out 
you know, of the office. Gosh, look at he split. But people yeah. love the Aloha Cube. They say it's really great if you can get an appointment. But the the major issue is not enough appointments. I think. Yeah, and then the no shows because then that messes up. And the it no up. shows. Mm-hmm. Yes. So we're we're really gaining a lot of momentum, and hopefully we can take care of everybody that needs to get in this year by the end of the year. And then what about like for registrations for your car? The motor vehicle registrations were backlogged, but we started um, overtime by the staff in March. And so the individual motor vehicle registrations should be back to the normal 10, 11-day turnaround time. Okay. Anything special with that, though, that people need to know? The main thing about the motor vehicle registrations is that it's more efficient and faster to go to one of the uh, DMV Now locations across that, that are open in all the different, about seven grocery stores across the island. Oh, right, the you kiosk. get an instant sticker and you pay any penalties that you, you owe immediately. You don't have to wait. So that's the most immediate way to do it. Another really fast way is to go online and pay. You still wait a couple of days, but you don't have to come into the location at all. So the least efficient way is to mail it in because they have to process checks and it's all manual. So that takes a little bit longer. It's probably the least efficient and the longest wait. And then, I don't know, do you have a handle at all on on any other backlog that people might encounter with city services or like building permits or anything like that? I don't have a handle on the other departments, backlogs that might be, you know, in, in the other divisions. I know that everyone is as we move into tier four, I think everyone is getting back to business, and I think everything is pretty much rolling along business as usual. You know, we're open for business, you know, with the masks and social distancing. Other than that, I think everyone is pretty much getting back to business. So I'm not aware of any other huge backlogs, and, and I think ours is going to be handled by the end of the year, and hopefully sooner. As you probably know, we the governor has given us a two-month extension for expired driver licenses until August 6th. It's important because we don't have any indication that there will be further extensions. So we would like everyone who has an expired license to, to do their best to come in to re- renew it before August 6th. For the customer services division, we have never worked remotely. We All of the staff has been able to come in or they've had to come in to do the work that's been required. So even when we had the shutdowns in 2020, they came in to do the mail-in renewals that were coming in for driver licenses and motor vehicles. I know that the rest of the city is opening back up, so they are all on probably fairly accelerated schedules to get back uh, everyone back to the office. Can't really speak too much for the other departments, but I know that we have been here the whole time, and it's just a question of being able to manage the social distancing for our customers and our staff. But most of our staff has been vaccinated. They were one of the early groups that were able to get vaccines. So the public should feel very safe when they come into one of our locations to do their transactions. You know, we have heard the University of Hawaii, you know, taking steps to bring everybody back in the fall. And I think they're consulting, conferring with the unions on you know, how this rollout works, getting everybody back in. Are you hearing anything just on the city as far as, like, time frame for getting other departments in? I'm not clear about other departments' time frames. I know there's so much diversity among the departments on how they've worked and how many people have actually worked from home. So I think it's really it really varies from department to department. But I do think there's a huge move, and many, many people are already back in the office. That was Nola Miyasaki, director of the city's Office of Customer Service, talking about the progress being made to deal with the pandemic backlog.
When you're out and about, stay connected on the HPR mobile app. Whether you're on a run, walking the dog, or just doing errands, take Hawaii Public Radio with you. Stream the latest news and talk from HPR One, or experience the soothing calm of classical music on HPR Two. Plus, you can see playlists, listen to interviews, and see the program schedule too. Available 24/7 right from your smartphone. Available on the App Store or on Google Play. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch and Sunday brunch at the Homa Cafe, along with evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Details at honolulumuseum.org. We continue our conversation around rail. This happens to mark the 20th week that former House Speaker Calvin Say has been in a city council seat. He uh, heads the council's budget committee, which just last week tweaked the budget for HART, the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation. He's calling on a more public discussion around the project's financing. My first two weeks, you know, I, I was surprised that, yes, the council has this sunshine law, and if council... Council member Cruz and I were to talk together, that's it. If I was to talk to another person, I may be you know, breaking the sunshine law because it may be considered what they call serial, talking to more than one individual. Throughout my career at the state legislature, which has been 44 years, and I thank the Lord, I was always trying to be an educator. And in this particular case at the city, it's very difficult unless you have a committee of the whole. Mm. I would have to have an informational briefing with the other seven members plus you, nine, total mm-hmm. of nine. And then I would, you know, make it a request to the chair that can we have an informational briefing of all nine members, and I would run it as the chair of budget, and we talk about all the different issues. You know, like the first two weeks, we talked about what was happening with the police department. Right. We talked about the homeless problems that we have. We talked about storm cleanups and because of the floods that we had in February and March and right, you know right. it just goes on and on yeah yeah but it's very difficult for you and I to talk to another member about mm-hmm. our issues I know the roles of engagement are so different on the city side Correct. Uh, I, I remember being a city hall reporter and then going over to the cover the state and I was just like oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> you and I could be on the railing with four other members right no I know and that <laughs> And that would be okay, but not here. Well, uh, you know, and, and you did talk with the, with the mayor uh, on Friday. I don't know if you talked rail at all, but I don't know. It, it sounds like you are just calling yeah. for some, uh, like, what, more transparency, more discussion, more conversations around rail. Uh, and that, that's where I'm taking the approach, yes. Uh, we will be having more during the interim, but I'm going to ask the chair of the council, Chair Waters, if it could be a joint. When I say a joint, it's going to be a joint hearing. Okay. I feel bad now. Catherine, when I, I do these type of uh, informational briefings mm-hmm. and hearings without the chair of transportation, Council Member Cordero, I would like to see that she takes the lead because she's the transportation chair and I'm the budget chair. So um, that's the approach I'm going to be taking for the next uh, three to four months. Just put yourself in the council with me. Both you and I were just not upset, but I didn't want to go back, meaning, you know, like, Heidi has always requested a forensic audit of $2 million now. It's a waste of good money going down the uh, rat hole because I'm waiting for the Fed, both you and I. You see this, number mm-hmm. one. <clears throat> number two, what would the results be of the forensic audit? Mm-hmm. Are you going to point fingers at individuals or are we going to be moving ahead? And that's where I told Radiant, you know, for me, I just want to move ahead. And I, I shared that with all the council members when we had our vote on the rail. Let's move ahead, but one of my major frustrations today is our source of revenue. Why are my hands and your hands tied at the behest of the state? They control the general excise tax. We had to implement the half percent. Just give us the flexibility of letting us decide if we have to increase the half percent of the general excise tax. It wasn't our proposal in regards to the combination of the general excise tax and the TAT on the neighbor islands. You see, that was during the special session that we had. But going back to my first premise, 
Catherine, you and I got to determine what would be a stable source of revenue. Not in 2031, the GET expires. That's not fair for the county. Because if you understand government financing, if you and I were to float general obligation bonds or revenue bonds, the life of a bond is 30 years, meaning you float the bond, you pay it back in 30 years. You think we can float bonds now today when the GET expires in 2031? You call a spade a spade, and that's my frustration. That's number one. Number two, I, I've read the administrators were not sharing all the information with the board. How do you like that one? When you say administrators, you're talking heart administrators? Yes, council member Cruz, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's how frustrating. And now do I blame the former board members, you know, our predecessors? No. I'm not here to play the blame game. I'm just here to resolve this issue once and for all. So what are I you do, calling for? We're just going to be having informational briefings, and, you know, we are calling on the HART board to determine what will be their arrangements with the FTA. And I don't know when they're going to be going, the mayor and the chair and the chair of the council. But the three of them have to get their act together. You heard what happened at the council hearing last week on the HART budget. Our former mayor, which I have the highest regards for, never did sign the budget. How you like that one? And then we had the big issue of jurisdiction. And the way some, you know, the court counsel said it's the board members that have the, the final say on the budget. And then our office of council services said, no, the council has it. Who's on first? Right. Who's on first? Who's on second? Well, I'm at, at home plate yet. I haven't gone to first base <laughs> because I'm learning what has transpired during these past 14, 16 years. We're stuck at Middle Street. Will they get a contingency plan next as far as sharing with the, with the general public of what will be their next course of action? But they can't say anything right now, Council Member Cruz and Council Member Say, because they got to get FDA approval in order to get the balance of the 750 or 55 million released from their original request at the beginning of the journey of heart, if you recall, the 1.5 billion. Fascinating journey for this, this project. You met with uh, Mayor uh, Blangiardi on Friday, and, and yes. your understanding is that Hart and the city will go up to D.C. sometime this fall to get an answer yeah. from the H, uh, FTA. And, and Hart and the mayor and the, uh, I would say, the chair of the Hart board, maybe uh, Toby Martin and Chair Waters as a delegation should be going up. But they have to go up there with a plan, right? <laughs> well, no sense you go up if you don't have any plan. If FDA is going to ask you, what's the plan? Oh, we just came down, came up to say hi to you folks. We are the new administration. We have, this is a new council, da, 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 da. I don't know, but that's where the mayor and the uh, heart would have to determine that with Laurie. Are they developing all the different alternatives? Where do you sit on this call to pause this project right now uh, until we figure this I, out? I, 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 I said to uh, Laurie that if, uh, nothing is done by the end of this year as a pause or even coming to some resolution about Council Member Cruz, we have to come up with a plan of action in regards to stabilizing our revenue. If not, if there is no revenue to pay off the operations and the capital improvement project, let's pause. Let's see where we're at. But first thing first, Council Member Cruz and Council Member say, we've got to find out if we have a very stable source of revenues. That's the discussion I want to surface and vet. And that's being honest with the general public. And so we can expect to see then some informational briefings about this as we try and, and get a better yes. handle on what's happening? Yes, we will. And we just keep us up to date as what's happening. When will those you know, start? Getting, probably in two months, August, okay. August, September, October. All right. So you're giving uh, Hart some time to kind of uh, get their house yeah. in order, come up with the plan. And, yep. And then at that point in time, we'll also find out you as a council member, as an example, we'll find out when they'll be leaving at the end of fall to go to D.C. to talk to the congressional and FDA. But in the meantime, you have to have something in your hand eh, when you go up. We did talk to uh, Senator Lorraine Inouye last week, and she expressed her frustration uh, at the uh, cancellation of the public-private partnership. She's frustrated, too, about where we go from well, here. Well, 
I'll, I'll give you a you know a political background. It's all personalities at the end of the day. You know where I say personalities? The person house leadership and Mayor Caldwell. If you recall, we had that special session. All the mayor requested was if he could just extend the general excise tax for perpetuity so we could go to bond councils to say we have this general excise tax in place to float our bond and pay it off with the revenues that we get from it. That's all it was. But maybe they knew more than I do because I wasn't in the loop at that point in time. And that's the truth because, yeah, I was on the outset after I lost my speakership. So what happened then was that, you remember they had a special session, Senate Bill 1, special session? Mm-hmm. And that was to finance, give this county another chance. And that was the financing of the extension of the GET and the TAT. But that doesn't give us any wiggle room. I mean, 10 years will be that, that particular law on the books will be, some, will be sunsetting. And then FTA would tell Catherine and Kelvin, you guys got to do something because after that, where are you going to get your source of revenues? All from ridership, not from ridership at this point. You know, you did mention you learned that uh, the former mayor didn't sign the budget. Where do we stand on that? He didn't sign any of the, the appropriation his eight years because he took the position that it was hard. All we could do was just rubber stamp. And I said, no. Coming in, you and I as freshmen of the city council, I came in saying no. The way it was structured at the city charter, creating the semi-autonomous board, the public doesn't know that much about the board members. They know more about you and I as the elected officials. So you approving this, Catherine Kelvin? I said, I, I have to. And we did cut the budget on the, not the operating, but the capital improvement diet. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying somebody should have challenged it. That's why I want. I just wanted you to be part of the council with me and just seeing <laughs> what we're going through. No. This is just one topic. Uh, that was my 10 minutes as a would-be council member talking with City Budget Committee Chair Calvin Say about his frustrations with rail. Say was at the legislature wanted to approve funding that the train use a portion of the excise tax and hotel room tax to help fund the public construction project that is now the costliest in Hawaii's history. Life is moving toward normal in the U.S., but the COVID pandemic is still surging internationally. The true scale of of the tragedy is is we don't have a grasp on it because in in many areas, the numbers of the people who are actually dying of COVID that are officially reported are only a fraction of what's actually happening. What will it take to beat the global pandemic everywhere in the world? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HBR comes from the Hawaii International Film Festival's Eat Drink Film Fest, featuring culinary dramas and documentaries from around the world, live virtual foodie events, and more, June 10th to the 20th, HIFF.org. We continue talking transportation on our reality check today. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri joins us live this morning. Hi, Marcel. Hey, Catherine. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. And... Gosh, so we were talking about rail, but you've got a story about the rental car crisis and how it's affecting Beaky bikes and the bus. Yeah, that's right. I was looking at a a couple of trends that we're seeing at this point in the uh, pandemic recovery. First one you're mentioning, the rental car shortage and the supply shock and the the price hikes that we've been seeing from that whole situation where, where people almost have to you know, offer their their firstborn kids as, <laughs> as leverage to, to get these uh, these vehicles. And the, the other thing that caught my attention was Uber and Lyft, the main ride-sharing, ride-hailing companies out there. And nationally, you're seeing a trend where the demand for those rides is starting to come back at this point in the pandemic recovery. But the drivers are slower to come back, and they are not meeting that demand so you're seeing people that are waiting much longer for rides in a lot of cases and a lot of price surging, which happens during normal times, but just the prices are, are generally more expensive at times. Anecdotally, uh, you're seeing reports of that, and that certainly has been the case as well here. So my general 
uh, curiosity in all of this was how this is impacting other transit modes in uh, in and around the islands on Oahu in particular. And so I focused on Bicky and the bus to see how this might be affecting them. And we did hear about how Bicky was having trouble because their ridership just kind of dropped out. Right. Vicky took a major dive, and they've been in some financial dire straits since the pandemic hit. So as a point of comparison, they saw 49,000. Well, let's back up even further. They saw 126,000 trips in May of 2019, a year before the pandemic hit. In May 2020, during the, the throes of the pandemic, that was down to 49,000 trips on Vicky. And talking to their executive director, Todd Boulanger, he's saying a lot of those trips were really just the, the core essential Bicky riders uh, that still depended on that service with the absence of the tourists and the visitors. Now, May of this year, uh, last month, that was back up to 115,000 trips. And Todd attributed a lot of that boost to the visitors coming back, these casual users, not really the members, but just, you know, general tourism and, and visitors returning to the islands. And he he also pointed as well to the rental car shortage and, you know, generally the Uber and Lyft rides uh, that those, those forces that we're dealing with have, in fact, um, at least sent some riders to Bicky. But he said that with a lot of caveats that the, the service is still in dire straits and you know it's still waiting for uh, other core users to come back the the folks that commute around downtown and uh and you know hawaii pacific uh university students kcc all of these areas that were a vital cog and a vital part of their ridership that are still coming back he described the the boost that they're seeing, in part from the, the rental car shortage, as a, a tourism tsunami, right? And that that is going to eventually dissipate and moderate. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a mirage, but they are benefiting from it in the short term. You were talking about, uh, you know, how there weren't enough drivers coming back for Uber and Lyft, but I had just heard a story the other day where uh, some of the, those drivers are not driving, but they're renting their cars because they can make more money and not have to drive around traffic. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting new forces at play, more stuff, frankly, for me to, to delve into as as to, um, yeah, these, these other forces. When, when the rental car companies run out of cars, what are the residual effects? And you're hearing about more people renting out their cars on an, on an individual basis like that. Uh, one of the other forces at play with the, the shortage, Uber and Lyft, is that a lot of these guys uh, were – went to Postmates and Uber Eats and things like that, where they found it's, it's lucrative and in a lot, a lot of ways just made a lot more sense for them to do food delivery and not, frankly, take your chances in a lot of ways with these one-on-one uh, -on -one on demand rides. And the bus has certainly seen some of the ridership pick up too. Yeah, a little bit. Um, they're at about half of what their ridership was pre-pandemic. They're saying they are probably seeing some rides uh, come back from, from the rental car shortages. They were at about 200,000 rides or 200,000 trips uh, average daily pre-pandemic. Uh, that plummeted to 57,000 average daily trips in the throes of the pandemic, and now they're back up at around 105,000 trips, and it's just a slow climb back for them. Yeah, and your article you know, talks about how you know, maybe DTS will partner with uh, the Hawaii Tourism Authority to let visitors know, hey, the bus is available. It's another option for you. Right. You know, I think a lot of people look at it as a positive, right, that uh, so many cars are off the road in terms of the, the rental cars and that this is one um, a good opportunity to, uh, to basically steer people who might be conscientious about tour, uh, sustainable modes of transportation to uh, use – things like the, the bus instead of a, a, a car that takes up so much space and has so much emissions. Okay. Well, we'll see you on the bus and uh, the biggie. <laughs> you too. All right. Thanks so much. That was thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org.
COVID-19 has swept through Hawaii Community Correctional Center on the Big Island. A mass testing effort last week brought active cases up to 136 among inmates, along with an additional 11 positive active cases among the staff. The prison went on lockdown after the first cases were discovered two weeks ago, and they halted all virtual hearings for inmates. Robert Kim, the chief administrative judge of the Third Circuit Court on Hawaii Island, says the virus spread like wildfire, overwhelming their pandemic preparations. The facility took another hit when an actual fire and other damage caused by inmates took their remote hearing system offline. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Judge Kim yesterday afternoon to get details. On May 28th, um, there was a fire that was set by inmates and subsequent damaging to facilities such as toilets, which caused a flood. Uh, Inmates, for their protection, were removed outside, and it began to rain, and uh, they were seeking to put them in a covered area, and there was a further disturbance where the inmates had um, basically uh, destroyed or damaged uh, the telephone lines, the Internet line, as well as some uh, security cameras, and that caused the Zoom or remote hearings to collapse. And uh, luckily today it's starting to come back up. So that system was offline for about two weeks yes. in total then? <clears throat> yes, because, um, because of the lockdown, there was no uh, ability, uh, because we all followed um, Department of Health protocols, um, to take any inmates out of the facility as they were testing the entire facility to determine the extent of um, the in- infection. It, it was unprecedented in that sense. Um, when the pandemic first broke out, uh, we worked uh, feverishly under the direction of our Chief Justice, Mark Rechtenwall, through a committee called Operational Solutions. What Operational Solutions did was to place the judiciary and our counterparts with the police and the jail to come up with uh, remote hearings so that we could still carry on the people's business. And so we had an interagency informal um, meeting with the police chief and the warden, and we were able to get the necessary remote access points with the understanding that if the pandemic returned, uh, we would still be able to operate. So this was unprecedented that they actually had a situation where the access points uh, were damaged or we couldn't operate for at least two weeks and maybe a few more days or a week or so before it's fully operational. Uh, Currently, I spoke to the warden uh, this morning and uh, good news is is that um, at least for that one segment of the jail, Komohana, uh, they are uh, up uh, and running with the Zoom We've double-checked it here at the court, and so I'll be notifying the judges that for those inmates in that portion of the facility, we will be able to have remote hearings. Because of the Department of Health protocols for the safety of the inmates and for the rest of us, uh, they had instructed the facility not to move inmates within the facility. And so that, that already was in place, but currently, only the inmates in Komohana, uh-huh. which is a certain section, would be able to take, take, take advantage of remotes within the next couple of days. I understand from speaking to the warden that the inmate within the, that Komohana facility would be able to go to the remote access point, uh, conduct the business that needs to be done, then the um, facility would sanitize the, you know, the entire area and then the next inmate, when it's scheduled, would be able to come in and use the remote. There was a period of time where they couldn't have taken advantage of the remote because of the restriction that they couldn't move inmates within the facility as much as possible because I believe they were attempting to figure out exactly how far the reoccurrence had permeated in the facility. Because mm. in the very beginning, the information I received was that it was limited to certain sections and that other sections weren't affected. But as they conducted the mass testing, it was later determined that all, all portions of the facility 
had been affected. Okay. Now, I understand why a fire or purposeful damage to that remote hearing infrastructure was an unplanned event, not factored into your protocols that were put in place or your considerations that were put in place were the facility to see a second wave of cases. However, it seems like movement throughout the prison, the idea that certain aspects, or in this instance, the entire facility would have to go on lockdown would be the first expectation were there to be an outbreak. Why was that not factored into the second wave protocols? Um, we, w we weren't aware of the um, depth of, of the pandemic um, in the facility. Up until two weeks ago, the warden had been, and he has been, very diligent in ensuring the safety of the inmates and had been very strict in the occurrence not coming into the facility when new inmates come into Hawaii Community Correctional Center. They're placed in isolation and for a period, I believe, of 10 or 14 days and not uh, allowed to intermingle with the other inmates. And if they pass that period, then they are able to you know, be placed with the other inmates that are in the facility. You know, until it became uh, sort of like wildfire, um, that wasn't uh, something that uh, was considered at that time. Mm. So a little over a month ago, the Hawaii Supreme Court rescinded its mandate that early release was necessary in order to keep capacity below what the current totals are to prevent against this type of outbreak. That's correct. Knowing what you know now on the other side of a, a continuing cluster within the facility, do you think that there were steps that we should have taken differently, or do you think we should revisit the idea of a mandate such as that? Because think, yeah, just because you do say that you were diligent in creating preparations for a second wave of the pandemic, and yet, despite your best efforts, we've still seen an out-of-control spread of the virus in this facility. Yes, and that, that is, that is uh, correct. That uh, It uh, took uh, a large outbreak in the facility, and so every day um, as we, in the courts and the like, we monitor it on a daily basis. And so if there is a need, you know, we're talking about you know, all options. And so safety is, of course, number one. And so we're monitoring it. And um, there are discussions. But I'm not clear that at this point, it warrants um, having another order statewide, we may have to address it on a limited basis. You know, as we progress, and I, I just want to be clear, uh, this is a this is an COVID-19 doesn't follow rules or, or the like. And even though, um, you know, things are getting better, we can never let our guard down. We must still be as vigilant as we possibly can. And so to the extent that we're all, at least on the Third Circuit, looking at how we can help the facility, uh, we're taking all steps. I think that it's not a good idea to have facilities that are with more inmates than the capacity. And so I think that the policymakers and all of us in the judiciary and public safety uh, need to consider um, the amount of inmates we're sending in. Um, but we have to do it on an um, informal basis. And so I think all of us need to have priorities because once the pandemic um, reaches like, you know, this stage, um, I think we have to consider it. And Rest assured that even though it's not formal policy, um, the police, the prosecutors, and the courts, we're all engaged in discussing what we can do to try to minimize this situation. And those, those discussions take place every day. Hmm. The facility must accept all inmates that the courts send to them. That is the reality of what's happening in Third Circuit. But like I said, um, the courts, the, uh, 
prosecutors, the police. We're all aware of what's happening there. And so we on our own are looking at cases and making priorities as to who should be sent. Can you specify those priorities? Um, where there are public safety concerns for the health and welfare of the public, then of course we need to protect the public. Um, but whether there are smaller cases and the like, or whether we can continue sentencing, those are all within the discretion of the police, the prosecutors, and the courts. Mm. Could you just give a quick definition of Rule 10 so that we're all on the same page? The specific concern for us on Rule 10, Hawaii Rules of Penal Procedure, is that um, the rule states that after committal from the district court, in other words, they've made their determination that the case will go to the circuit court, the rule requires 14 days uh, that an arraignment in circuit court take place, and the Supreme Court has issued an order suspending that. At least in Kumohana, that infrastructure is starting to come back online. Yes, Does coming back online, and we tested it this morning. Great. And so I will be notifying the judges that um, it's up, and uh, I understand that they're still working feverishly on getting the other portions of the facility up again, too. Does the suspension of Rule 10 still apply? Um, well, the suspension is in there till July 31st, according to the latest Supreme Court order. However, it's, you know, if, if we have arraignments, those are going to take priority because if, if uh, we, we know that the inmate, say, is in Komohana, we're going to try to set the arraignment as soon as possible so that we can comply. You know, understand that we all want to comply, even if the rule is suspended, uh, to protect the rights of um, any inmate who is uh, being charged with a crime. Uh, they're innocent until uh, proven guilty. And so even though there's that suspension, we want to make sure that we uh, try to follow the rule as, um, as, as best we can. As soon as we get remote up, you know, we'll be starting to process those cases. And do you happen to know, perhaps from the warden, when we might have the rest of that system back and up uh, and operating? Uh, I know they're working um, on it diligently. I speak to him every day. We have a set time, so I can advise all the judges. Um, so I'm ho have my fingers crossed that uh, it'll be sometime this week. I'm hoping. And yeah. then I just have in front of me again. HCCC has a design capacity of 206. You said that you got an updated number from the warden today about how many inmates were currently housed in that facility. Could you repeat that? Uh, 346. Thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you want to impart in our listeners or that you feel is essential to understanding this issue? I think everyone in the judiciary, from the Chief Justice down, has um, worked very hard through the pandemic to ensure the safety of the public in our courts. And so we will continue to do that. That is our number one priority, to make sure that anyone enters our court facilities, that we are taking all measures to ensure that the pandemic uh, does not reach them. That was Robert Kim, the chief administrative judge of the Third Circuit Court on Hawaii Island. Public safety reported an additional inmate disturbance at HCCC last Friday, including the setting of another small fire. We'll follow up on the outbreak tomorrow. We'll hear from Hawaii County Mayor Mitch Roth and Dan Mistak of Community-Oriented Correctional Health Services. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by donating ocean shipping for food bank networks, including Oahu's Hawaii Food Bank and neighbor island food banks. Matson.com. 
Coming Saturday, June 19th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with the lush sounds of Intoxica. The trio revive and reinterpret Exotica music made famous by artists like Cal Jader, Martin Denny, and Arthur Lyman. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Duke's Waikiki and Hula Grill Waikiki. We recently featured a story about a big esports tournament that's getting underway uh, last month here in the islands. Reporter Casey Harlow takes us back to learn more about the tech skills that University of Hawaii students are honing that hopefully will translate to careers and things like the cyber world, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Morning, Catherine. Uh, yes, so Overwatch is holding its second tournament at U- the University of Hawaii at Manoa this week. And uh, one of the great things about this is that students have a hand o- hands-on experience with uh, professionals in the industry, learn from them, and apply their education to basically other careers within this industry and network with these professionals as well. Yeah, so uh, you know, I know that this is a, a, a growing field, so lots of young people are really like locked in on esports. Exactly. Uh, I spoke with a student, uh, Justin Chow, who's a creative media student. So that's a lot of film and uh, video editing, and you know, a lot of video content. And he uh, makes highlight reels. He makes uh, behind-the-scenes content for the UH esports teams, and he's also a member of the Overwatch team at UH. But on the side, he does these highlight reels to kind of build up his resume, to build up his portfolio so that he could eventually get a career in Blizzard Entertainment, who's the maker of Overwatch. And uh, he characterizes some of the things that he does uh, with the skills that he's learning at UH. If I'm at a live event, I would be filming a lot of the player interactions and setups and behind the scenes stuff. A lot of that would go into cinematography and getting those shots and knowing what to film. And also, besides that, the video editing aspects for After, those are the aspects from the creative media program that I'm hoping to learn and take with me and then apply into the esports job field. And what's also great is that he's learning from the people who produce and broadcast uh, the tournament on YouTube globally. So he's applying those skills as well to these uh, within the tournament as well. And there's a lot of opportunities at UH to not only learn the broadcast side of things, but also the coding, the um, development, and just a lot of options out there for uh, UH students to eventually get into some sort of section within esports. And, you know, I I know they've got that brand new facility and you got a chance to see it for yourself. Oh, yes, it is uh, amazing what is out in West Oahu. Um, UH West Oahu has uh, the Academy uh, for Creative Media facility. That's going to open its doors for the first time this fall. Uh, It has everything that you could ever imagine for media production. Uh, For film, they have a soundstage. They have maker studios. They have editing booths, uh, multiple editing booths. They have... Uh, theaters where you can engineer with the latest sound uh, technology from Dolby as well and there's writers rooms and also rooms that support new media so like the Van Gogh exhibit that's going to be at the Honolulu Museum of Art students can learn to create something like that in a room there at UH West Oahu. Yeah, you know, I know the, they've got lots of young and upcoming talent, and I know when I worked at the local, a local TV station here at KRTV, you know, we were hiring uh, students that came out of West Oahu. So you really get kids that are just still going through school but are getting a leg into the workforce. Yeah, exactly. And so um, I spoke with uh, the ACM director, Sharla Hanaoka, out there as well. Uh, yes, Students who come out of, say, Y&I, uh, they have broadcast experience already, so they're basically going to build out what they already learned in high school and look into other areas and other aspects that maybe piques their interest or you know just gives them an awareness that, hey, there's also this, like brand imaging and uh, PR or business and things like that. I also spoke with uh, Maynette Benham, who's the chancellor of West Oahu, who uh, kind of like discusses what else they're kind of incorporating within their education. So it's the business end of it, it's the design end of it, it's the ethics end of it. So our folks are actually talking to, you know, like FBI, attorneys, whatnot, you know, just so that our students really get a full 360 understanding 
of all the opportunities around this growing industry. Yeah. It's a growing industry. So there's plenty of opportunities there, and UH is uh, giving all the resources and uh, opportunities for students to pursue anything that they really want to and giving them a very thorough understanding. Yeah, so it's really kind of igniting that creative spark. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, so uh, uh, what else are the students saying? Uh, students, um, you know, it's basically taking these uh, traditional courses uh, that you would get in, say, like film or advertising, and then just uh, shifting it just a bit so that you could get into esports because it does promote a lot of, uh, does promote and sustain a lot of different industries within it. You, there's basically any career path that you want in esports, there's a career path in it. Okay, yeah, so we'll have to see then how, uh, how the uh, uh, enrollment goes in the fall. Uh, you know, obviously this esports tournament is kicking off a lot of interest, so uh, we'll see what materializes. Exactly. But thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HBR's Casey Harlow about the field of esports being uh, a tech gateway here in the islands. You can find his esports stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. That is it for today. Uh, tomorrow, we get ready to mark Global Wellness Day and hear from an author who felt that wellness marketing was getting too far out there. Share your comments or questions about what you've heard here on our air by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.